Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Morning, Grace. We are finishing up the book of Philemon today, so please take your Bibles and make your way there. Uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to begin an exposition in the book of Ruth, and I look forward to that. I've already kind of been uh, messing around with the text. I'm excited about what God is going to show us. It's a love story, but don't check out on me, men, because it's a love story really about God and his people. Yeah, there's some romance in there, but uh, it's really about God and his people. So I look forward to that. Pray for me as I work on that this week. Let's pray as we uh, begin. Father, thank you for the cross and your wonderful redeeming love that you would reconcile to us, us to you when we were under your wrath. And it's all because of Jesus. May we think about him this morning. May we give thanks for his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for your spirit. God, we're so dependent upon your spirit now to open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. Help us, God, in our relationships to rehearse the gospel often and to extend forgiveness. We can't do it on our own because it is so hard, God. Would you help us to be people that freely embrace your forgiveness and then freely extend that forgiveness to others? In Jesus' name, amen. Relationships involve a little bit of give and take. You already know that because you know people in your life. This was never more true, perhaps, than for Bonnie and Clyde, uh, notorious and infamous gangsters of the Depression era. They're a personal interest of mine. Um, They lived a life on the run from the authorities as public enemy number one. They survived by robbing banks and robbing stores and stealing cars. Uh, Newspapers and magazines at the time made Bonnie and Clyde out to be worse than they actually were. I think they got blamed for, for many things and many lies spread about them. But as the rumors spread, for some people, the gangster life seemed glorious. Remember, this is the Depression era, so if you're making 27 bucks every couple of weeks and you could rob a bank and make $4,000, which is still a lot of money, you can see why people would think that the gangster life was somewhat glorious. This was evidenced by a new addition to their ever-changing gang. One of Clyde's most dependable partners, Raymond Hamilton, picked up a new girlfriend on one of their trips in Amarillo, Texas. Her name was Mary O'Dare, and living the gangster life for her truly was a step up. In fact, she used to be a prostitute, so she was stepping up her life. But those in Clyde's gang did not really like Mary. She was described as a short girl with a nice figure, but had a hard face, covered by enough makeup to grow a crop. Even though she was delighted to be a part of the Barrow gang, she soon started complaining. The gang members often slept in the woods, in their cars. They didn't stay in hotels and things like that that often. They would often have to retreat so they wouldn't get caught. Occasionally, they would eat a nice meal from a restaurant, but only one person would go in and order the meals to go, and they would take their meals 
and eat with plates and forks and spoons in the middle of the woods. They did not want to be seen by anyone and caught, but that wasn't good enough for makeup-wearing Mary. She wanted to eat in fancy restaurants and later be taken to a nightclub for drinking and dancing. This was the kind of life that she expected as one of the newest members of America's, one of America's most famous criminal gangs. Clyde and Bonnie, however, refused Mary's wishes and it further, further, furthered the tension between Clyde and Raymond. But Clyde didn't tell Raymond and Mary to take a hike and hit the road, even though she was complaining, because Raymond Hamilton was one of Clyde Barrow's most dependable partners. Every bank robbery, any job that they were doing went smoothly, went according to plan, because Raymond Hamilton Hamilton was cool under the pressure. Without Raymond, Clyde would be stuck robbing convenience stores by himself because many of the new gang members were still green and folded under the pressure when they would be robbing banks. Bonnie and Clyde needed Raymond Hamilton, even if it meant dealing with Mary O'Dare. Raymond Hamilton was crucial to the gang. He was crucial to the partnership that they had. Every gang member shared in and had to be shaped by the dynamics of the gang that they were a part of. As their gang made their way across America, Bonnie and Clyde had to learn that every relationship has a little bit of give and take. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the rest of Philemon today. Our big idea is this. Gospel refreshment happens when relationships share in and are shaped by the gospel. When disciples of Jesus Christ realize that they share together in the benefits of the gospel message and their relationships are changed by those gospel truths, then gospel refreshment happens. When we realize that we are together on the same team, on the same mission, that we are in fact partners And when we realize that and inject the gospel into every relationship of ours, then the gospel will come and do its powerful, transforming work, and God will get glory. And that's what we are to be about in this church and in all of our relationships, that the gospel would do its work and that God would get glory. That is precisely what is happening here in the last section of Philemon. Paul is calling on Philemon to come to grips once again with the fellowship of the gospel that he shares with other believers and to insert and to inject that very gospel into those relationships, particularly his relationship with Onesimus, his runaway slave. Look with me at verses 17 through 18. So, Philemon, if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Notice that Paul now officially petitions Philemon. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Literally in Greek, it's receive Onesimus as me. Receive Onesimus as if he were me, Philemon. Imagine how Philemon would act if Paul was released from prison and showed up. They would hug each other. They would embrace each other because they loved one another and they were partners in the gospel together. He would be thrilled to see his friend. So Paul says to Philemon, 
you see Onesimus standing there right in front of you as he has delivered the letter to you and to the church, and as you're reading this letter out loud, that's me, Philemon. Now, embrace him like you would me right now. Paul bases this request on the gospel because he says this phrase, if you consider me your partner. The word partner here comes from that root word for fellowship, that word that we all know, koinonia. The word means partnership or sharing. He's saying, you're my partner. If we're in this together, Philemon, if we're partners in the gospel, if we share in the faith, which he's already talked about in verses 6 and 7, if we share in this faith together, then receive Onesimus as if he were me. So what we have to do, Grace, we have to kind of crawl inside this verse and, and see what Paul is doing. He's injecting gospel hope right into this severed relationship. Paul is asking Philemon to do what God the Father has done for us because of what Jesus has done for us. Just as God receives us because of Jesus, just as God embraces us because of Jesus, Philemon should receive and welcome back Onesimus. See, in the gospel, God receives us. God embraces us as if we were Jesus. It's what the reformers called the great exchange, which Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul wants the gospel that he shares with Philemon to shape and change and transform Philemon. He wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away from him and stealing from him. Verse 18 reveals that Onesimus had, in fact, cheated Philemon. The word if is not speculative here. In Greek, this is a first-class condition for any of you that understand that. It's a first-class condition in Greek whenever you see the word if, and it means this. If he has offended you, and he has, then charge it to me. So Paul says, charge it to me. I know he's offended you. Charge it to my account. I will repay it. See what we see here, what Paul's doing? We see another picture of the gospel, the beautiful picture of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. In the preface of his commentary, which he wrote in 1522, Martin Luther said this, What Christ has done for us with God the Father, that St. Paul does for Onesimus with Philemon. For we are all his Onesimi if we believe This is a beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy because we are all like Onesimus, born rebels, born sinners, born enemies, running from God. And Jesus comes and says to the Father, charge their sin to my account. I will pay for it. What Paul is doing here in his plea to Philemon is fleshing out the gospel before our eyes, fleshing out the gospel before Philemon's eyes. He is discipling Philemon in how grace works and how grace can come and transform any severed relationship.
Only God's grace can do that because when relationships get severed and there's conflict, it can get quite ugly, can it? Which is why we need to understand that when there is conflict between believers, it always affects other believers. When there's conflict in any relationship, it always affects other people. It goes out with a ripple effect to other people. The strained relationship between Philemon and Onesimus was affecting Paul and his co-workers and the church that met in Philemon's house. The effects of strained relationships are never just limited to the two angry parties involved. Understand it. The effects of strained relationships are never limited to the two people or the two parties who are involved. It always, always affects other people. Singer-songwriter David Wilcox captures this truth so well in his song, Covert War, which describes a child, now a grown uh, adult, caught between two warring parents. He says, Dear Mom and Dad, here's why I can't come home. Because I can't talk to either one of you. I can talk to either one of you just fine when it's either one alone. But the Thanksgiving table is going to be pulled out bigger If we talk at all, one of you will pull the trigger. I used to run those battle lines trying to smooth over what got said, trying to get a medal, trying to get some shrapnel in my head. Thought it was my duty to plead and to implore, but I caught too much crossfire in your covert war. The television talks, fills the air, so you don't have to start. You claim your territories in the rooms upstairs To keep yourselves apart. Holy days they bring us all together. After so much left unsaid. You taught us well not to kick under the table. But you kick under your breath instead. I used to stand between you. Trying to smooth over what got said. Trying to get a medal. Trying to get some shrapnel in my head. I thought it was my duty to plead and to implore. But I caught too much crossfire in your covert war. Of course, there was the anger where the love is strong. It's spilled like gasoline. It's crude, but it's a power we can draw upon if it fuels the right machine. I love you, and I'd never want to see you bleed when comments cut like steel. So to hold your fire, I'd block the shot and take the hit for you as if I could not feel. I thought they'd pass right through me, that I had no scars to hide, But now I open up and try to love, and I find they're still inside. I used to run those battle lines trying to plead and to implore. Please, won't you hold the ceasefire out a little longer until the next uproar? I took it all in childhood, but I can't take it no more because I caught too much crossfire in your covert war. Have you ever considered that when you are angry, and fighting with someone, and there's a rift, and there's a severed relationship, that there is always a third party involved. 
that there's always someone or a group of people who stand between the two fighting parties and they usually feel the emotional brunt of the situation. You see, we're such selfish human beings when there's severed relationships. We focus on my pain, my hurt, what they did to me, but we don't consider the strain and the pressure that we put on the innocent person or the innocent parties that's trying to see reconciliation take place. Next time you have a falling out with someone, remember that there is likely another person or people caught in the crossfire between you and the other person that you're at war with. Paul was caught in the crossfire between Philemon and Onesimus. He was taking shrapnel to the head and heart. He was running the battle lines trying to plead and to implore. And here he comes once again to inject gospel hope into this situation because he wants to see refreshment come to everyone. Gospel refreshment happens when relationships, strained, broken, severed relationships share in the benefits of the gospel like forgiveness and reconciliation and then they're shaped by those benefits of the gospel, forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul is willing to even get involved financially if it means gospel refreshment will come. He will pay for whatever Onesimus stole in order to see the gospel do its work. In fact, Paul writes it with his own hand to stress the point. Look at verse 19 with me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul likely had someone writing this letter for him as he dictated it to that person. But here he grabs the pen from his amanuensis, the fancy word for someone who writes a letter for you while you're dictating it. He grabs the pen from their hand to say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to you. As if to say, Philemon, do you see? The penmanship has changed. I am telling you this. I will repay whatever he took from you because I so want to see gospel refreshment happen here that I will get involved financially if necessary. I will sacrifice to see restoration happen. And then Paul brings up the fact that Philemon owes Paul his very life, which I think we can understand from this that Paul either shared the gospel with Philemon and he became a Christian, or maybe he's just had an impact upon his life. But either way, Paul and Philemon know what Paul is talking about. Philemon owes Paul big time. There's an interesting note here in verse 20, though. It's the word that Paul uses when he says, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. The, the word benefit here has the same, it's the same Greek root in, as the name Onesimus. Paul is saying here, pun intended, you know Onesimus, his name uh, means useful or beneficial. He used to not be useful, now he's useful, he's very beneficial. Now Paul is saying, Onesimus will now be useful or beneficial to you, Philemon, So now, Philemon, you be my Onesimus. You be my benefit. I want some benefit. I want some Onesimus from you. Paul is asking Philemon to be beneficial, to be useful, to be Onesimusiful to him. When Philemon accepts Onesimus back, 
it will make more widely known the gospel message. The church that meets in Philemon's house will see a living picture of the gospel. They will experience gospel refreshment. It will bring gospel refreshment to the church, to Paul's co-workers, and to Paul himself. And that's what Paul wants because he values gospel refreshment. He's already highlighted this as an evidence of God's grace in Philemon's life in verse 7. He's already told him, you're constantly refreshing the hearts of the saints. Now I want you to refresh mine. Look at verse 20. Yes, brother. I want some benefit or Onesimus from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. We've already seen this word here for heart two times already. It's the word for the, the, the bowels or, or the guts, the, the affections, the emotions. Paul says you've refreshed the guts of all the saints. And then he says in verse 12, I'm sending my very guts to you, Onesimus. And now he says, I want you to refresh my guts. Because that's where we feel it, isn't it? When there's strained relationships, you break up the boyfriend and girlfriend, there's conflict. You don't really feel it in your heart, do you? You feel it in your gut. Paul says, I want you to refresh me. I want reconciliation to happen. Gospel refreshment happens when relationships share in the gospel and are shaped by that very gospel. When when they realize there's gospel partners, we're we're together, we're sharing, we're partners in the gospel, we should be shaped by the gospel. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to do with Philemon. Because Paul is a partner with Philemon in the gospel, notice how he helps disciple and shape Philemon here. Notice how Paul reacts to Philemon's struggle to forgive. Notice the comfort and hope and encouragement that Paul injects here. Look at verse 21. Confident, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I love how encouraging Paul is here. What a rebuke to my life. What a rebuke to my life. Paul says he is confident that Philemon will obey his instructions. In fact, Paul says, I know that you'll do even more than what I'm asking. He knows his brother in the Lord. He knows Philemon will go the extra mile. Perhaps Philemon will rehearse the gospel and remember all the grace and mercy that has come to him because of Jesus, and he'll extend that grace and mercy to Onesimus. Maybe he'll even do something wild and crazy and gospel-centered, like saying, Onesimus, not only do I forgive you, brother, welcome back into the home, welcome back into the church, but I'm even going to give you a raise because Jesus has been so good to me. I want to go the extra mile. I love how encouraging Paul is. I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, do we act this way? How do we typically act when we see other people sinning? How do we act when we see others expressing a struggle with sin? Christians are notorious for throwing other Christians under the bus. We're notorious for this. We're notorious for pridefully condemning other Christians when they struggle with sin. Let me tell you, I am so guilty of this. Sometimes I wonder, is this my gift? I'm so good at condemning people when I see them struggling their sin or we have a conversation about something happening in the church and I just throw them under the bus. I love what Philip Yancey said. Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. 
Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. We all do this, and it's pride. We say things like, I can't believe they struggle with that sin. They're just a carnal, worldly Christian. I can't believe they did that. Listen, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Sinners who are still under the wrath of God because they've never trusted in Jesus. And sinners who have fled to Jesus and said, you're my everything, you're my treasure, I trust in you. Only two kinds of people, believers and unbelievers, those who have not been forgiven and those who have, those who are Christians and those who are not, those who are disciples following Jesus and those who are not. There are only two kinds of people in this world. You're either a Christian or you are not. And when it comes to Christians, there's only one kind of Christians. There are no second class Christians. We are all sinners saved by grace. None of us are better than anyone else. The fall that happened in Genesis 3 when Adam's sin affected every single one of us in different ways. We all struggle with sin, but the specific sins vary. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. Or as Herman Melville said in Moby Dick, dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. I'm reading a book on pastoral ministry by Paul Tripp and he talks about how pastors and all Christians deceive ourselves by thinking we're not that bad or messed up. He says, speaking of this one pastor, this pastor had become what all of us have the tendency in our sin to become. Very skilled self-swindlers. Here's how it works. If you aren't daily admitting to yourself that you are a mess and in daily and rather desperate need of forgiving and transforming grace, and if the evidence around you has not caused you to abandon your confidence in your own righteousness, then you are going to give yourself to the work of convincing yourself that you are okay. You tell yourself again and again that you are not the problem, that it is or they are, but not you. It is vital to remember that every pastor is in the middle of being reconstructed by God's grace. Every Christian, every disciple is messed up. Every Christian is in the middle of being reconstructed by God's grace. Parents, you need to teach your kids this. And you teach it by going to them and saying, will you please forgive mommy and daddy? Because we yelled at you when we put you to bed or we yelled at you when you got ready for school. And I have no excuses, but I can only say that daddy is a great sinner, but we serve a greater savior. You've got to teach your kids that. You're messed up just like they are, but Jesus is a wonderful Savior who's reconstructing you by His grace. And it'll bring joy to you when you hear your kids say it. Because one of my kids last night, Heather's making some chocolate pancakes, and he was looking at the goop, and he said, this is a picture of my soul, Dad. I am messed up. (laughs) A big glop. You're right, son. 
but we serve a great Savior who is slowly transforming us and making us new. So remember that. When someone sins against you and offends you and hurts you and you see them struggling with sin that you don't struggle with, enter into that truth with them. Remember that you are just as messed up as they are. The fall and sin of Adam is affecting them differently in that they are struggling with something different from you. Don't throw them under the bus Inject the gospel into the situation. Have some gospel compassion. Realize we're gospel partners in this. Don't look at them and say, oh, you struggle with worry. How could you struggle with worry? I can't believe you struggle with worry. Instead of look at them and say, I don't get it. I don't struggle with worry. But man, I struggle with this. And we're gospel partners. And, and I don't get why you do, but I'm going to enter into that moment with you because I know what it is. With, I struggle with pride or lust or anger. And so enter into their moment saying, this is how the fall has affected them. This is what they struggle with. Don't throw them under the bus. Come alongside them when they offend you. And you want to talk about them. You want to be angry at them. Say, Ah, you're my brother, you're my sister, I have compassion on you because this is how sin is messing up your life and this is how sin is messing up. How can I pridefully look at you and say, oh, I don't struggle with that. How could you struggle with that? Gospel refreshment happens when relationships share in the gospel and are shaped by the gospel, when we share in God's grace and mercy to us and his forgiveness and his reconciliation of us, and we we shape others, and we are shaped by that very message. Paul is confident here. Even though he knows that Philemon is a sinner, even though he knows that Philemon is struggling to forgive, he does not throw him under the bus. He does not say, I can't believe you struggle with unforgiveness, Philemon. I can't believe that you let this get under your skin. Come on, brother, you must be some weak Christian. Can't you forgive him? I even said I would pay it back. No, he enters into the moment. He encourages Philemon with the gospel, with gospel hope. We need a lot more of that around here. We need a lot more of it in our home I need a lot more of it in my life. Verse 21 has been rebuking me for weeks because I so quickly throw other Christians under the bus when I see them struggling. And it's pride. And the last time I read Proverbs, it's been a while. I think Proverbs 7, maybe, can't remember. It says there's seven things that God hates. And one of them is pride. We need more understanding of the gospel around here in this church, in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces. Dave Harvey says, Here is what I have learned. How I relate to others in their sin reveals my true grasp of the gospel. How I relate to others in their sin really reveals whether I understand what it means that God is Father, that God is merciful, that God sent His Son. How do you relate to others when they sin against you or you see them doing something that you, of course, would never do? How you treat them, how you talk about them, reveals whether or not you are truly grasping the gospel in that moment. Whether you truly understand gospel fellowship and gospel partnership. 
the way we treat others and talk about them, when we see them struggling and see them when they offend us and see them sinning, the way we treat them really reveals whether we believe the gospel in that moment. We see proof of this deep, sweet, sincere gospel partnership and fellowship in verses 22 through 25. Look there with me. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul wanted to see Philemon because they were true gospel partners. So Paul says, prepare a room because I'm hoping that through your prayers, God will graciously deliver me and get me out of prison. We see a picture here of what gospel partnership and fellowship is like. We say a litmus test here of true, real, genuine gospel fellowship. It's one you want to spend time together. Paul says, I want to see you, Philemon. And all of my friends are sending their greetings because we're partners together in this gospel ministry. You want to spend time together. You want to come to church and see other Christians. You don't avoid certain people at church. None of you do that, do you? I'm the only one that does that, right? Oh, there's that person. You want to spend time together. You want to show up at Sunday school and and see people. And you pray for one another. Philemon has been praying for Paul. I don't think Paul is trying to make him feel bad like... I know that through your prayers, <clears throat> I will be graciously delivered. I think Philemon probably told Paul, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying you'll be delivered, released from prison. So Paul says, I know you're praying. True gospel partners not only want to spend time with one another, they pray for one another. And they work together for the very gospel that glues them together. That's what Paul says with this list of names of Paul's friends. Paphras, my fellow prisoner, he's in it with me. Our fellow workers, this this list of people who are sending greetings. We're all in this together. All of the people mentioned in the book of Philemon at the very beginning and at the very end share in and their lives were being shaped by the gospel message. It was true gospel fellowship, true gospel partnership. I want more of that here at Grace. I want more of that in my life because I'm messed up and selfish. I want more of it here at Grace and it's only going to happen in my life. It's only going to happen in your life by God's grace, by his transforming, changing, powerful grace, which is why Paul ends his letter in verse 25 by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God's transforming, powerful grace arrest your heart that you begin to change. And what's interesting is now Paul switches to the plural form when he says, your spirit. We would think he's talking to Philemon, but remember when it says grace to you at the very beginning, he's writing to the whole church. And then he starts talking about Philemon and he drags Philemon's business into the middle of the church. And then he comes back to the church and says, the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. He's saying, may the transforming grace of Jesus be with y'all. May his grace transform all y'all's relationships. May his grace cause you to see that you share in and should be shaped by the gospel. So may God's grace come to all of you. 
May God's grace come to all of us. I hope our time in this little book has been refreshing to you. I hope you've experienced gospel refreshment. I have been rebuked by this book. I've been exposed once again by God's penetrating word. I have been encouraged by it. I have been comforted by it. And I hope you have too. As we close our series of gospel refreshment, I want to reflect on the words of Pastor Ligon Duncan. He says, And those who truly understand God's sovereign grace to them are people who are gracious to other people, and they are merciful to other people because they know the mercy that has been shown to them undeservedly. The truth will go bad on you. Get this. The truth will go bad on you. The truth that we've seen in in Philemon, the truth will go bad on you unless you turn it into prayer and turn it into practice. Unless it is changing the way you think and relate to God, the way you think of yourself, and the way you show the love of God to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to all mankind. God's mercy changes us. And so real knowledge of the truth of God always, always has a corresponding impact on our experience and on our living. Don't let the truth of Philemon go bad on you. Tread deep into the waters of God's mercy and grace and then go wide in your expression of that grace and mercy to others. Continue going further and deeper into the gospel. May you share in and be shaped by the gospel. May God's grace enable forgiveness and reconciliation to occur here for his glory. May grace become a church that is characterized by and known for and having a reputation for gospel refreshment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your penetrating word. Comes and exposes us. It has been exposing me for months. It has been a mirror by which I see my soul, by which I see my sinfulness. But it has also been a picture of your great transforming grace that has changed me and is changing me, and it's all because of Jesus. May we become a church who constantly rehearse the gospel and remember all that you have forgiven us of, and may we be so overwhelmed by that truth, so overjoyed by that truth that when others wrong us, we go to them and say, I gladly forgive you because God has gladly forgiven me. Would you make us a church that is known for gospel refreshment and then may you get great glory as it happens. Give grace to us because it's hard to forgive and we struggle to forgive. So would you transform us by the power of your grace to forgive as we have been forgiven because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. 
For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.